0: Welcome back to Scripture Central. I'm Lynn Hilton Wilson, part of the Come Follow Me team. And today we get to talk about the wonderful book of Galatians. This is one of Paul's authentic books. He has the same vocabulary. We find a lot of continuity between these authentic early books. And there's a wonderful message here that Paul was called by Revelation. The challenge with the book of Galatians is we are coming into the book like in the middle of a second act, and we don't know what happened in the first act. But something has gone wrong, and everyone is mad and angry, and Paul is sharing some experiences when he was having a really bad day. In addition to talking about Paul's authority, the text also talks about the Savior's sacrifice and resurrection. You know, Paul always refers to Christ, and his atonement is usually central to that theme. The book of Galatians was probably written during Paul's third mission, which makes it possibly the first letter or the second or third letter, but very early, probably before he's imprisoned in Caesarea and in Rome. There's enough evidence in the text that give us some clues on when these things happened. It also appears that he's writing this from Macedonia. In the book of Acts, if you want to follow along, just go back to chapters 13 to 16 and you can see where it falls in. But Paul is probably writing this at the end of his third mission as he's going to spend the winter in Corinth. Remember, he's leaving too late in order to go by boat across from Ephesus directly west to Corinth. And so he has to walk because the winds are so bad in the, in the wintertime, in the water. So he's starting to walk across into Macedonia, northern Greece. And as he comes down, he stays for a while in Philippi. And this is where we think this letter was written. He refers that he's writing it to all the brothers and sisters with me as co-authors. So the saints, there are part of his joint work. And instead of this just being to one church, it looks like it's a circular letter. It's written to many churches in Galatia, possibly up to eight churches that are there that he first saw on his first mission with Barnabas. And then again, he came back again with Silas on his second mission. He's writing them and reporting. But it sounds like between his visits... And this letter, there has been some people coming in trying to not just usurp Paul's authority, but also um, change the story. And Paul is defending himself over and over again in this letter. We've got four major themes in the book of Galatians. The number one is that Jesus fulfilled the Mosaic law of sacrifice. The second is that the law of Moses should not be a burden to the Christians, Then he gives us some powerful autobiographical details that we don't have anywhere else, but they do collaborate with consistency with the book of Acts. He corrects false teachers, and he especially attacks the Judaizers. And just as a reminder of this vocabulary, this is a word that Josephus used. We find it in certain translations of the New Testament, but it means one who is a Jewish convert, who loves the Savior, who accepts him as their Messiah, but they also want to keep. All the law of Moses. They want to keep every detail. They don't want to give up any of it. Christianity is just one more prophet idea rather than a fulfillment of the law. So, those Judaizers is what he attacks this whole letter long. I've written out a long outline. My handout should be attached to this video as well as my slides. I'm just going to go through it briefly. There's only six chapters. His introduction is beautiful about being one gospel, one Christ, and he receives it only through Christ. And then he gives his thesis. We're still in chapter one. And his thesis is that God has called and trained him through revelation. He then turns next at the end of chapter one and beginning of chapter two to this wonderful autobiographical information. He recounts the Jerusalem council. He tells the story about a time when Peter came to visit him and he rebuked Peter in front of everybody else. I think it was a bad day for both of them. He then in chapter two, verse 15 to 21, talks about being justified by faith And then chapter three begins with this interesting allegory. He talks about Abraham. He starts out with Abraham's experiences with faith and not with the law. And then the second half of chapter three, he says the law was just the schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. Then we turn to chapter four, and he continues with this idea, a little bit of Abraham. He says, we are God's sons and heirs. We are no more servants, but there will be a righteous remnant that will be saved if they are zealous. And then chapter four ends with Abraham's first two wives, Hagar and Sarah, as symbols or an allegorical form of the Jews and Gentiles. Chapter five talks about Christian liberty. He sort of changes his approach here. He talks about faith and hope and love and the gifts of the spirit. And then in chapter six, he concludes with his exhortation to walk in the spirit, to seek revelation, to bear one another's burden. And he ends with his own hand and his own benediction, like he usually does in the end of chapter six. So let's dive into the text. Chapter one, verse one, Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither of man, but by Jesus Christ and God, the father. In many of Paul's letters, he is clear to talk about the father and the son, but here especially, he is clear to say he was called by revelation first line. You can tell he's very skilled in saying, in writing, and he wants to say it clearly right from the start. I was called of God. I was not called by Peter. I was not called by the church at Antioch. I was not called by the church here in Galatia. I was called by Jesus Christ. And then starting in verse six, from about chapter one, verse six to 10, he talks about this need for unity. He says there's one gospel and it is all through Christ's teachings. Verse six says, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you unto the grace of Christ and to another gospel. He's the one that called them. Or possibly, is it the spirit that called them? But he was their missionary. Obviously, the missionary is not doing the work of conversion, it is the spirit. But um, I think he might be referring to himself there. And then continuing on in verse seven, this is the NIV. Evidently, some people, are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel. So right from the start, we learn that there is a huge problem going on and he is addressing it. We don't know why or how or who, but it's very clear that he's trying to reroute and align these people once again with Christ's teachings. Verse 10 says, "'Am I trying to win the approval of men or God? "'If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. By reading through the lines, it sounds like one of the ways that Paul is being attacked is saying he's just doing this to receive the approval of man. He's just doing this so that he can have power and prestige and esteem. And he's just saying, "Ah, you know, he's trying to pull out his hair. This is ridiculous. This is not what I'm trying to do." And then we get his thesis, verse eleven and twelve in chapter one. I make it clear to you, this is the NEB translation. The next is the NIV translation. I want you to know brothers and sisters that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. You know, he's referring back to his first vision, his second vision. Remember the book of Acts has seven visions and he's been filled with the gift of prophecy and revelation the entire time he's been a missionary. And now that he's an apostle of Jesus Christ, Verse 13 continues on, being more exceedingly zealous of the traditions of my fathers. So he goes back to say, remember, I was a Pharisee. Remember, I was fighting against the church. I was so zealous. I was trying to live all the thousands and thousands of these oral laws. I was going in the wrong direction. And it was Jesus Christ. It was the vision where he came and corrected me. That is what changed me around. In verse 15, it says in the New King James Version, God, who separated me from my mother's womb, called me by his grace. Now, I want to just remind you that that word separated is also translated sometimes as set apart. And when it says my mother's womb, that means before I was born. We have so many examples in the New Testament where a pre-mortal life is referred to. But I think that we are one of the only Christian traditions, if not the only Christian tradition, that has that in our theology, that has that in our doctrine, that not only are we going to live afterward eternally with our Father, but that we have lived before with Him as well, and that we do have that personal relationship. And now Paul turns on to his autobiographical information, and he gives us some details that we don't have in the book of Acts. He says in verse 18, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and abode with him 15 days. So he's been converted. He's had his experience. He stays with Ananias. He was, made, uh, he was healed of his blindness. He stays there and preaches for a while. And after three years from this first vision, he comes down to Jerusalem. But he's so frightened to see other people. He just stays with Peter. And for 15 days, he lives with his family there. So even though he's a Christian, no one in Jerusalem has seen him yet. I guess the problem was someone is claiming, oh, I knew him in Jerusalem before, and I know this and this. He's saying, nobody saw me, only Peter and James. Now, James is the name for Jacob. So we have lots of James, just like we have lots of Marys. In the New Testament, we now have at least three. The first one, of course, is the son of Zebedee and Salome, the brother of John the beloved. So that would be Peter, James, and John. Um, But he has already been a martyr by this point of writing the Galatians. And then we have the account of James, the other apostle, and then the brother of the Lord. And this is that one. And we know that he becomes a great leader in the church. We learn in the New Testament that even though he didn't follow Christ all during his ministry, that he didn't believe Jesus was the Messiah, once Jesus died and was resurrected, he appeared to Peter and his brother, James. And from that appearing, he was able to change as well. And he becomes a great leader for the church in Jerusalem. Continuing on with this autobiographical information into chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 1 reads, 14 years after I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, and I took Titus with me also. Now, this collaborates with Acts chapter 15, as well as several other verses in Galatians So he's come down this 170 miles down to Jerusalem, and he is meeting with the saints again after his first mission. He needs to talk to Peter. He needs to talk to the whole church to say, we've got to have some continuity on this question of how much of the law of Moses should we be asking our Gentile converts to be living. And that became what we call now the Jerusalem Council. Let me just give you a timeline here Galatians 1 parallels with Acts chapter 9, with Paul's conversion. And then we have a short verse or two on his time in Damascus. That's verse 17 in Galatians 1. Then we refer to his visit to Peter and John in Galatians 18. And then Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, correlate with Acts chapter 15 with this Jerusalem council. But continuing on with verse 2 in the BSB, I went in response to a revelation, And I set before them the gospel that I preached among the Gentiles. But I spoke privately to those recognized leaders for fear that I was running or had already run in vain. This is fabulous. We're learning that the missionaries are obedient to the leaders of the church, that there's an organization. Sometimes in biblical history and early Christian history, the theories develop like Paul started a church, Peter started a church, no, no, no. It's Christ's church. It's not even President Nelson's or Joseph Smith's church. It is the church of Jesus Christ. And he is running it on the other side of the veil for Peter and Paul as he is now. and, And as he did on earth during his ministry, Paul goes to speak to them privately because he wants to make sure he hasn't made a mistake. The tricky part about this is Paul as a Pharisee, really knew the law. In fact, I think Paul knew the Old Testament law better than any other Christian, um, at least that we know of in the scriptures. And as a result, he does not want to burden the Christians with these. He sees it very differently. Verse three reads in the NIV, yet not even Titus was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. So he's saying, we had this discussion. I said, what portions of the law do they need to live? I had Titus with me, and he was not made to be circumcised. You don't need to be circumcised. You can tell that Paul in this letter is attacking the Judaizers who are saying everyone needs to live every aspect of the law of Moses. Verses four to six continue to attack these Judaizers. And remember that in addition to the laws of Moses that were later counted up to be 613, after they came back from Babylon, the Israelites built what they call a fence around the Torah. And it included thousands, some people count 10,000, what they called oral laws. And in the New Testament, Christ calls them the traditions of the Jews. But that's where you get how many steps you can take on the Sabbath and what you have to tithe and how much you can carry on the Sabbath and where a woman should be and who she can talk to. And all these things that are the micromanaging of the law instead of allowing the spirit to take over They're living the letter of the law. And Paul says this is bondage. And in verse four, we read, false brethren have come in under false pretenses to spy out our freedom in Christ Jesus in order to enslave us. In the BSB verse seven, we read, I had been entrusted to preach the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. So he's saying, we each have different responsibilities. We each have different callings. And of course, I'm going to be like a she-bear to my Gentile converts, because that's my calling, that's my responsibility. And Peter had his responsibility, and he felt strongly about his too. I want you to notice that he is speaking respectfully and honorifically about Peter. Not only did he go back to talk to him in Jerusalem after his conversion three years, and then 14 years later, but even here, he's saying, Peter has this great call. He calls Peter a pillar of the church, in fact, verses 7 to 10. James, Cephas, that's Peter, and John, those esteemed as pillars. That's verse 9 in the NIV. And they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. They're saying, when we came down for the Jerusalem council, we made these decisions that we would only have to have the Gentile converts live for the laws. They did not have to be circumcised. They had to keep the law of chastity. They called it Don't commit adultery, Um, but really pornea means all aspects of that. Um, But that's where our root from pornography comes. It It was against the law of Moses, and it's against our law as well as Christians. And then don't eat things offered to idols. Don't eat things strangled. And he said, we were all in agreement in the NIV. Also in the NIV, verse 10 reads, all they asked us were that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. And may I add that that is still our Christian call is to see that we have no poor among us and to be generous with our means and to strive to live the law of consecration in every way we can. And then comes verse 11. Now, this is their bad day. Both of them, I think, are having a bad day. And I'm sort of surprised that Paul even mentions it in this letter, but it's embarrassing for both of them. But I just want to remind you that just as a two-year-old can have a bad day and just as I can have a bad day and you can have a bad day, we are all mortal. We do not believe in the infallibility of an apostle. They can have a bad day, just like your bishop and your primary president and your seminary teacher. We can all have a bad day and repent, but this was a bad day. Verse 11. But when Peter came to Antioch, so it sounds like as head of the Cormor of the Twelve, he's going around visiting the churches. He goes up to see Paul and Barnabas and how they're leading the church up there in Antioch. I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. Paul's mad about something. And in front of a congregation, he points it out to Peter and says, you are doing that wrong and you need to repent. So this is Paul's personality coming out a little bit here. Uh, Actually, I still think it's a bad day. He didn't keep his natural man in tow. Continuing on in verse 12, he's talking about when Peter came, you had the Gentile converts that were all meeting with Peter. And then you had some Jewish converts come in to see Peter. And I'm going to read from the ESV. Before certain men came from James, he, meaning Peter, was eating with the Gentiles. Now, the certain men from James would be uh, James, the brother of the Lord, the leader in Jerusalem. And you have people who are coming there who are very strong in the Judaic faith. They are what is referred to as the Judaizers. And he continues on. But when they came, he, Peter, drew back and separated himself. Fearing the circumcision party. Now in the Jewish world, it was unclean to eat with a Gentile. It was unclean to to brush your shoulder with a Gentile. It was unclean to walk where a Gentile had spat. It's unclean to even be in a city. You have to do a mikveh bath after all those contaminating things. And so the idea of eating with someone, since you're sharing you're using your fingers, you're sharing the same serving bowl, you know, it's very you don't eat with someone that's not clean. So Peter leaves the Gentile Christians when these Judaizers come into the room and Paul's furious and he calls him on it. Verse 13 in the NIV reads, the other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. Paul says, everyone started following Peter, including my companion who knew better, who was an apostle. And he's referring back to his first or second mission because remember Barnabas does not go with Paul on that second Gentile mission, but they are together up in Antioch between the first and second. Verse 14, I said unto Peter before them all, if thou being a Jew, livest after the manner of the Gentiles and not do as the Jews, why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? After that explosion, Paul calms down, or at least his quill takes a break. And he now speaks from chapter two, verse 15 to 21 on the justification through faith. In Christ. And we mean that word justify is diakomwood, means to show, to be righteous, to declare righteousness. It reads in the NIV of verse 16: a person is not justified or righteous by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith. He's saying, I used to think that the law saved me. I thought it was obedience to the law that got me to heaven. That is wrong. It is not obeying the law. It's your humble, meek reliance on our Lord. It's faith in Jesus Christ. It's the Savior that saves us. It's just a deception that that Satan has used. This is consistent with what we read in the Doctrine and Covenants. Chapter 19, verse 16 says, I, God, have suffered these things for all that they might not suffer, if they would repent. So we have to add on to this information that we receive from Paul and now say one is justified when one repents in faith. If we have faith in Jesus Christ and repent in his name, then we can become cleansed. In the Galatians chapter two, verse 17, it says, if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is therefore Christ a minister of sin? God forbid! So he said, hey, if we make a mistake and we're sinners, even after we've committed ourselves to be Christ's servants, is there just repent, change, keep going. Verse 21 in the BSB reads, if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died for nothing. He's saying if we could be saved by obeying these thousands of laws, why did our Savior go through this whole atoning sacrifice for us? In chapter three, the first five verses talk about how revelation comes by faith, not the works of the law. And he says in verse one, oh, foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you? This is just fabulous. He's saying, you guys, I taught you. I knew you. What happened? And I just want to say this to some of my friends sometimes. Who bewitched you? Are you hypnotized? What happened to you? You had a testimony. You've got to remember back. He then follows through with six questions in these next five verses of chapter three. I'm going to read some of them from the NIV. After the who has bewitched to, he says, did you receive the spirit by the works of the law or by believing in your heart? Are you so foolish? After beginning by the means of a spirit, are you now trying to finish by the means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain if it really was in vain? Does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law? or by your believing what you heard, meaning what you heard of Jesus Christ. Miracles come by our Savior. He is the answer. The next few verses of chapter 3, verse 6 through 14, Paul goes back to talk about our father Abraham. But instead of just using him as the father of the tribes of Israel, of the Jews, he refers to him as the father of the Christians because of his faith. Verse 6 reads, As Abraham believed God, And it was accounted for him for righteousness. And then he says, you know, so too should we. And verse seven in the NIV reads, those who have the faith are children of Abraham and all nations will be blessed through you. He's saying he already exhibited faith before he received the law of circumcision. And he goes on to talk about this in verse 10. This is in the BLB translation. For as many as are of works of the law are under a curse. Cursed is everyone hanging on a tree. This idea of being cursed for hanging on a tree is repeated three times in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 21, 27, Habakkuk 2, and Leviticus 18. Three different books, four different times. And all these references are in my handout as well. This is one reason why the Jews had a hard time with Christ's death, is he's hanging on a tree being crucified. And they know that that means he's cursed. Well, As you recall, the Gentiles thought he was cursed because no God would ever have to die. You know, a God is immortal. So everyone has their own problems with this. But I just see this as Satan trying to tear away from anyone's faith in Jesus Christ as the Savior of our world. In chapter 3, verse 14, it reads, that the blessings of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Now, did Paul or the false teachers in Galatians first use this example of Abraham? I don't know. But he goes on and finishes it up quite a bit. And he uses this idea of Jewish midrash. You know, it's sort of a discussion where you're arguing against an opponent and giving examples like it was a dialogue. Verse 15 and 16 in chapter 3 read in the NIV. Brothers and sisters, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed, meaning one person who is Christ. So seed is singular. Abraham's seed, the only person who was born with only one mortal parent, is our Savior, Jesus Christ. And he's taking us not only back to Genesis chapter 2, but then references in Genesis 13, 15, and Genesis 24, 7. Verse 19, Paul continues asking these questions, and in the NIV reads, Why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgression, until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. So we had to live it because of transgression. We had a lower law and we are in a position today where more can be revealed as soon as we are ready to receive it. As soon as we live all that the prophets have given us, we know that there's more scripture coming. And I feel like the spirit can teach us ahead of time in general conferences, in our scripture study and on our knees and in our temples when we are ready. The Joseph Smith translation adds a huge difference in chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. I'm going to read just the JST, but on my handout and on my slides, I've got all the places that were crossed out as well. Wherefore, then, the law was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made in the law given to Moses, who was ordained by the hand of angels to be a mediator of the first covenant or law. And now this mediator was not a mediator of the new covenant, but there is one mediator of the new covenant, who is Christ, as it is written in the law concerning the promises made to Abraham and his seed. Now Christ is the mediator of life, and for this is the promise of God made unto us. Beautiful changes there on the JST that again focus on Christ, that talk about the atonement. You know, I just feel like this is exactly what Nephi said. We talk of Christ. We preach of Christ so that our children may know to what source to look for a remission of their sins. I feel like there's never a meeting. There's never a time when we cannot preach of Christ or testify of Christ or praise our Savior, Jesus Christ. Continuing on in verse 21 to 23 in the BSB, is the law then opposed to the promises of God? Certainly not. He's saying, don't throw out the law. The scripture pronounces all things confined by sin. And before this faith came, we were held in custody under the law. He continues on in verse 24. And again, there's a little bit of JST change here. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster until Christ. Now, it said before to bring us unto Christ. And Joseph changed that. The law was there until Christ that we might be justified by faith. So the Mosaic law was to act as one under with direct responsibility. It's sort of like you're the schoolmaster, you're the tutor, or you're the one who has responsibility over these children and you've got to raise them correctly. Another translation is a guardian in the NIV or a trainer in the BLB or a guide. You know, the, the law was a guide or a tutor or something for these children. Paul's thoughts are very consistent with the Book of Mormon. And I'd just like to share an idea of another group of devout Christians who believed in Jesus Christ but they were still under the law. This is 2 Nephi chapter 11, verse 4. My soul delighteth in proving unto my people the truth of the coming of Christ. For for this end hath the law of Moses been given, and all things which have been given of God from the beginning of the world unto man are the typifying of him. Now, it's not just the law of Moses that typifies Christ or that is symbolic or allegorical of the coming of our Messiah. So is the law of the harvest, so is nature, so is the heavens, so is the lives of the prophets, we're told. You know, everything is to lead us to Christ. And our Savior has created this world with so many messages to take us to our knees. But Satan is counterattacking, and we have to fight him every day. Chapter 3, verse 26 reads, "'For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus.'" He's saying, you're not going to become adopted into Christ's family unless you have faith to join, unless your faith is so strong, it's going to end you to become like him. It's going to motivate you to work like him and live like him. Verse 27 reads in the BSB, all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. Now this is an interesting use of the word clothed here in the BSB. Because the word "clothed," remember, in Greek, is "endued" or "endowed," and it refers to a ceremony where there is an endowment of power given, like when a king is is coronated or something, or a priest is given his first robes and his um, cleansing and his washings and anointings. You know, that's that clothing that a priest receives is what he's saying here. You've been clothed with Christ's message, verse twenty eight. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither bond nor free. There's neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. So whatever is being attacked against Paul, he's trying to say, no divisions. Let's allow the Gentile converts and the Jewish converts to sit together and to be one in Christ, not having separate tables, not eating separately, not doing things separately, but combining our faith to have a stronger church here in Galatia. Now we turn to chapter four, and it begins off with the first 11 verses talking about how God's sons and daughters are heirs. They are no more servants. It reads in the New King James Version, the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave. Now, remember in this world, we talked about this earlier in the Gospels, um, the Roman world has one third slaves and servants. It's the same word, although they do different things. And in the big cities, it's about a half. There's an enormous understanding of the pyramid, the social hierarchy in the Greco-Roman world and in the Judaic world, actually. So Paul's making this analogy between in a normal household, I mentioned earlier that there's usually eight servants or slaves, middle class, normal home. So he's saying a child in this home is doing the same work as a slave. They're going to help their father eat. They're going to get them dressed. They're going to be helping in the kitchen. They're going to be helping in the yard. They're going to be doing their chores. You know, they're, They are servants to their parents until they come of age and then the heir after age 12 and a half is no longer considered a child they are an adult and they become an heir and will receive what their father has upon the passing of their father so paul takes this idea in galatians chapter 4 verse 7 and i'll read it in the niv so you are no longer a slave but god's child and since you are his child God has made you also an heir. We become adopted into Christ's family through obedience to his laws, through faith. And remember, faith is an action verb in the Greek. It's not a passive verb. It's those people that can actually um, become like our Savior and apply the gifts of the Spirit. Now, the second half of Galatians, starting in chapter 4, verse 12 to 20, talks that Christians should remain zealous in righteousness. Just because you were zealous in the Judaic cause, stop counting your steps and spitting on rock instead of on dirt or whatever, you know. Now take all that zealousness and apply it to our Savior, Jesus Christ. We don't want any passive Christians here. We don't want anybody who says, I'll just try to get into heaven. As long as I'm the last one there, I'm happy. No, we have to sacrifice to get in. We have to serve God with all our heart, might, mind, and strength to get in. And he says in verse 12 with the Joseph Smith Translations, Brethren, I beseech you to be perfect as I am perfect, for I am persuaded as ye have a knowledge of me that ye have not injured me at all by your sayings. This Joseph Smith translation, I think, is saying we're trying to be complete. Remember the word perfect is whole and finished. And he's trying to say, I'm trying to perfect your faith. I'm trying to help you move through the... Um, gospel of Jesus Christ so that you can become like Christ. The whole thing is to come unto Christ. That's the whole reason why we have ordinances and covenants, it's to come unto Christ. So he's saying, you're not hurting me, you're hurting yourself, you're hurting our savior. And 13 and 14 continue on. You know how through the infirmity of the flesh, I preached the gospel unto you at the first, and you received me as an angel of God. So there's some challenge that he has physically, that he doesn't go into detail about. The saints knew all about it. He says, I was not feeling well. I was not doing well. And you received me like an angel. Do you remember our first meeting? You know, he's having them go back through this trial. And then continuing on in verse 17 to 18, he says, those people are zealous for you, but not in a good way. It is good to be zealous if it serves a nobler purpose. That was the BSB. KJV says, they zealously affect you. And the NIV says, they are zealous to win you over. Or the NEB says, they are envious of you, or they eagerly seek to you. What he's trying to say is, can't you tell they're trying to proselyte you away from Christ's teachings? Can't you see that there is actually a war going on spiritually here? And you need to defend your faith. You don't need to succumb to their efforts to take you away from our Savior. Verse 19 reads in the New King James Version, My little children, for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you. He's saying, please go back to that infancy state where you received the gospel. I will continue to labor with you as a woman labors in childbirth. The last part of chapter 4 now refers to Abraham again as becoming heirs of Abraham. This is chapter 4, verse 21 to 30. Abraham had two sons. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, and his son by the free woman was born because of the promise. Now, the slave woman is referred to as Sarah's handmaiden, Hagar. She's an Egyptian slave, or she's an Egyptian servant who's living with them, getting room and board, and her son is Ishmael. And you recall that um, there was animosity and contention between the two wives and their sons, And the Lord said, allow them to establish two different nations and allow them to leave. That's what he was referring to here. Verse 24 in the NIV reads, these things are being taken figuratively. The women represent the two covenants. So he is talking obviously to people who really are saturated in the Jewish law, because to us, this doesn't sound quite right. I mean, why would you ever want to be equated to Hagar? Why would you ever want to be equated to, you know, it's just, it's just crazy. But it made sense to his audience. This is a very well-known story, and he's trying to say, can't you realize that um, Abraham's example through Isaac is Jesus Christ? It's the freedom that we can receive through his atoning sacrifice, if we would repent. Chapter 4, verse 25, the NIV reads, Hagar, then I'm skipping ahead a little bit, bears children who are to be slaves, or to the oral laws, you know, to all these Jewish laws. He's just making an analogy. It really isn't true. And then he turns to talk about Sariah, or Sarah's son, and with Abraham, Isaac. And so reading in verse 28 and 30 in the NIV, now you brothers and sisters, like Isaac are children of the promise. And what do the scriptures say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Now that is what the scriptures say but I don't think we understand the whole picture. And I'm looking for more light and truth on that one in heaven, when we can sit down and talk to Hagar and Sarah on that one. Chapter five begins the first half, verses one through 15, on the liberty that comes through our savior, Jesus Christ. And he's not saying that there are not laws, but they're saying the ability to repent, to take off your barnacles, to come unto Christ and be forgiven is so much greater than the fear and trembling and anxiety that would have existed in living every single little oral law. And no one knew that better than Paul, because he had been a Pharisee. Josephus says there's only 6,000 Pharisees, and Paul had received that level of obedience to live it, which means they were entangled in these 10,000 oral laws. Verse 1 reads, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free. Be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. So he's saying, you know, we are to put on, share our yokes with Christ. And when we are shared with Christ, it's not a yoke of bondage. It's a yoke to grow and progress and have freedom. Verse 2 continues on in chapter 5. I, Paul, say unto you that if ye be, and he's using the word circumcised as the sign of the law of Moses. If you be only circumcised, then Christ, meaning your Messiah, shall profit you nothing. If all you're going to do is think that the sign of the covenant that was given to Abraham is sufficient, you've lost the message. It wasn't the sign of the covenant. It's Abraham's faith. It's his obedience. It's his charity. It's his long-suffering. It's his sacrifice that allowed him to become the promised. Galatians 5.5 5 continues on. We, through the Spirit, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. Now, remember that this idea of waiting implies that our growth in righteousness takes time, while faith implies that our growth in righteousness includes action. I want you to keep that in mind. Don't become disappointed in yourself. Realize I can do better and move on. But don't become disappointed because we make some mistakes. That's Paul's whole message is we need a Savior. We need to be redeemed and and utilize the grace of our dear God. Verse 6 continues on in the BLB neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any power, but only faith working through love. The actual act of circumcision was just a sign of entering into the covenant to to prepare for the Messiah and to defend his laws. Um, But the word circumcision continued to grow at this time until it encompassed the whole law of Moses. So they used them interchangeably. Chapter 5, verse 7 to 10 now starts with an analogy of running a race. You are running a good race. Who cut in to keep you from obeying the truth? And skipping down a little ways, the one who is throwing you into confusion will have to pay the penalty. That's the NIV translation. And he's saying, you are completely messed up, but it's not your fault. You've got a false teacher and they'll have to pay the penalty with God. In verse 13, we read in the NIV, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. And then verse 14, For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. But I would just like to pause and say, Paul was not there at the Last Supper. Christ said, I give you a new commandment to love as I love. I feel that's much greater, much harder to achieve, but also much more important. Also, Paul is quoting the second commandment. It's always important to remember that we must obey God before we try to appease humanity. God is our first commandment, and then we love our neighbors. But the new commandment for Christians is to love like Christ loved. Verse 16, if you are guided by the Spirit, you won't obey your selfish desires. Now, that's the CEV translation. Now, in the KJV, it says, Walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. But the whole idea is if we have the Spirit as our guide, we aren't going to be. Um, as tied down to the natural man, the Spirit can encourage us. You know, if we take upon ourselves the name of Christ and everything we do during that day, if we are doing it in the name of the Savior, we can be empowered. We can receive the enabling gift of his atoning sacrifice to be, overcome Satan's temptations and our natural inclinations of the natural mortality. In chapter 5 now, he sets up two parallel accounts. He talks about the works of the flesh. And then he turns and talks about the works of the spirit. The acts of the flesh are sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, desirous of feigned glory, provoking one another, envying one another. You know, he's just listing a whole lot of of awful things that go on. And then he says... But if you're going to work under the Spirit, and now he turns in verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self control. Against such, there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions. When we have the Spirit, we do not have the desires to break Christ's laws. We want to do better. We want to become more like him. When we have the spirit, we don't want to say anything wrong or do anything wrong. It's when we offend the spirit that those things come in. I want to just pause for a minute and talk about the differences between the gifts of the spirit and the fruits of the spirit. One is the means and one is the end. The fruits of the spirit are the end of the law. And when people say to me sometimes, but I've never felt the spirit, I just say, have you ever felt patience? or love, or joy, or kindness, or self-control, or gentleness. Those are all fruits of the Spirit. If you felt those things, you felt the Spirit. But the way that you get there is by using the gifts of the Spirit. We have to testify. We have to seek greater faith, and hope, and charity, and revelations, and healings. You know, those are all the things that are mentioned in First Corinthians 12 as well as Doctrine and Covenants 46, and in the book of Moroni, and in the seventh article of faith, you know, we've got them in all four standard works. It's a very important part. I think it was one of Joseph Smith's favorite topics, actually. Now we move to the last chapter, 6. Verse 1 through 15 talks about bearing one another's burdens. I'd like to read verse 4 in the New King James version, but let each one examine his own work. And do you remember back in 1 Corinthians, Paul told us to examine ourselves before we partook of the sacrament, to see if there was anything we needed to repent of. And he's saying the exact same thing here now. I want you to look inside. I want you to carefully take note, as if you were a scientist, looking through a microscope. You know, Let's be conscientious of our need for a Savior. And then in verse 8 in the NIV, it reads, Whosoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. And verse 11 reads in the BSB, see this large letter that I've written to you with my own hand? Now, in the King James, it sounds like he wrote the whole thing. But in other translations, it sounds like he writes at the very end his own signature. We're not told who the scribe was, but he writes large letters saying, hello, it's me. This is how you know I'm approving this letter. I've read it. And we do not have the original Greek copies, but we have copies of copies of copies, and we have thousands of them, and we're very blessed to have them. He concludes by saying in the NIV, chapter 6, verse 14, may I never boast except in the cross of Lord Jesus. He's tried to defend himself this whole letter long. And then he says, I don't need to defend myself. I never want to boast. I am a human with a lot of faults. I just want to boast in my Savior because he is the son of God. And I believe that with all my heart. Jesus is the Son of God, and we are his servants, and we are here to do his bidding in the name of our Master, Jesus Christ. Amen.